Well, good evening, all. My name is Tom Palmer. It's my very great pleasure and my honor to welcome all of you to the second Cato University program of 2017, Cato University's College of History. We held the College of Economics in Newport Beach uh, earlier this year. Uh, Cato University is in my portfolio at the Cato Institute, where I'm a senior fellow. I had been a vice president at Cato, and we developed a lot of international programs. And on January 1, 2009, moved all of those over to the Atlas Network, where I became the executive vice president for international programs there. And so I tell people I used to be 100% at Cato, and now I'm 90% at Atlas and 60% at Cato. Uh, I get. I get to work with uh, hundreds of other think tanks all around the world, like the Cato Institute. This is an institution that has a great deal of prestige all over the planet, and people look to Cato as a, a model. What's well, so nice to see uh, longtime friends. I'm old enough, I learned not to say old friends. Uh, and also so many new faces as well. And I hope that uh, we'll be friends by the end of the program. Now, as part of welcoming you to the seminar, I thought it appropriate to tell you something about the Cato Institute. Many of you may know this, but perhaps some do not. Uh, this year is important in Cato's history. It's our 40th anniversary of promoting liberty and limited government. The mission of the Cato Institute is, quote, <clears throat> to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now, those libertarian principles used to be called liberal. And indeed, in much of the world, they still are. If you go to most countries around the world and you believe in limited government, you are called a liberal. The economist Joseph Schumpeter noted about this country, quote, as a supreme if unintended compliment the enemies of private enterprise have thought it wise to appropriate its label. So if I sometimes lapse and speak of liberal principles, please forgive me. Uh, I, don't, I spend most of my year outside of the United States. And remember, I'm using it in its classical sense. Classical liberalism, as it's called in the academy, or as we use in normal American English, libertarian in the United States. The Cato Institute is organized as a public policy research institute under the rules of Section 501c3 of the United States Federal Tax Code, the most complex creation of the human mind. Uh, it means that someone who invests in our work is able to deduct the amount of the donation from his or her taxable income. So if you're taxed at a 30% rate and you donate $100, you take $100 off of your taxable income, saving $30, and the cost of your donation is $70 rather than $100. I mention that because some people seem to think that the way to get rich is by donating to a think tank. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not true. But anyone who'd like to try, please come and talk to me afterward. Now, our support is also 100% voluntary. We receive no governmental funds neither from the US government nor from any other government around the planet. And we're very, very careful to keep that firewall intact. The great bulk of our revenue, 80%, uh, comes from individual donors. Those are 
numerically and materially individuated human persons who write checks or use PayPal or uh, credit cards or what have you uh, from their own hard-earned money to support our work. We get a smaller percentage from foundations, about 15%, 1% from corporations, which leads the media to call us the corporate-backed Cato Institute, <laughs> and 4% from the sale of books, registration fees for conferences, and other program income. Cato relies on the support of about 15,000 current loyal sponsors, mostly but not exclusively United States, who make yearly donations as expressions of their own personal commitment to liberty, limited government, freedom of trade, peace, and the rule of law. Now, most of the work of the Institute focuses on particular issues of public policy, taxation, spending, regulations, uh, foreign and military policy, criminal justice, the war on drugs, freedom of speech, property rights, protection, health care policy, and so many other things. The Cato Institute is also active in the judicial sphere, filing many, many uh, significant and important uh, friend of the court briefs. Unlike some other think tanks, we do not claim that we do not have an agenda. I gave a talk some years ago to all the uh, Fulbright scholars in Washington, D.C. at a conference, and there was a person from another think tank. I won't mention the, Brook the, the other group. Uh, and the vice president there said, unlike the Cato Institute, we have no agenda. We only produce social science research. And the only person in the room who was fooled was the person who said it. Well, I think actually did believe it. That's, in a way, the saddest part. Uh, everybody has an agenda. Everyone has things they want to accomplish. Just the questions that you ask says a lot about your principles and your agenda. For example, in Washington, D.C., our colleagues at Cato ask a very difficult question one that I also ask in social circles and so on. And it's considered very rude. It's a rude and indecent question. The question is, where in the United States Constitution is the power proposed in this legislation or regulation authorized? <laughs> it's unpopular. People roll their eyes. They clear their throats as if someone had just made some unpleasant sound. But Cato has asked that question for 40 years and will continue to ask that question. We demand policy be rooted in law. <clears throat> so that question alone tells you a lot about our agenda. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in the principles of constitutionally limited government. We believe in the presumption of liberty rather than the presumption of power. When newspapers print headlines such as Senate fails to pass consumer protection. Notice, Senate fails to pass. Or the like, it says something about the agenda that's not even conscious to them. But they have an agenda, a set of principles. But we believe it's better to be upfront about our values and our principles and not smuggle them in, as is much more common. Now, our mission statement says that we advance the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. We believe that stating our principles up front helps us to be more attentive to the virtues of intellectual excellence, accuracy, objectivity, and fairness. We don't smuggle the principles in. 
uh, through the back door. We acknowledge them, we defend them, and then we make work to make sure that the research, the outcomes, the numbers are not dictated by those principles. And that's very, very important. <clears throat> the standards for studies at the Cato Institute are very high. The numbers, facts, and citations are checked and rechecked. The work is in pursuit of the public interest and not an expression of some special or partial interest. And the arguments and evidence for competing proposals are, are met on their strongest and not their weakest form. Rather than knocking down straw men, we believe in serious discussion. When a Cato Institute book or study is published, we invite the smartest, fair-minded people who will disagree to come and beat it up. And if our scholars cannot meet that, then we should not publish that study. So that is our set of standards. If it cannot stand up to the toughest critics, we shouldn't publish it. But we're not just about applied public policy analysis or intervention in court cases. Everything we do at Cato stems from our basic principles. And in addition to uh, producing work motivated by principles, we are willing to defend the principles themselves directly. And Cato uh, University is one of the vehicles through which we promote those fundamental ideas of liberty. Cato started running summer seminars in 1978, and I attended the first one uh, that year. I was one of the three interns at the Cato Institute, uh, the three first ones. I went on, did all kinds of other things, and then many years later was offered a cool job at the Cato Institute. They were reorganized and relaunched in 1997 under the brand name of Cato University. And this year, we've shifted from week-long programs that we've been running for some years to long weekend programs. You're at the College of History. In July, we held the College of Economics in Newport Beach, California. And next April, we'll hold the College of Law and Philosophy in New Orleans. Now, this is the College of History. So I want to start with a substantive discussion of why history is important. Well, for a lot of us, certainly for me and probably many, maybe all of you, it's just enjoyable for its own sake. It's pleasurable to read about and think about the past, to visit the Acropolis of Athens, the Forum of Rome, to think of what great people strode across those stones, uh, to visit the Great Wall of China and Independence Hall and imagine what they were like when they were new. It's not that fun to memorize lists of Roman emperors or English kings and queens or American presidents. But it's really enjoyable to see what the minds are, the human dramas that unfolded in the past and that made the world in which we live today. Beyond that, it can be very helpful to ask what ifs. What if at the Battle of Pharsalus, Pompey, then in command of the Republican army, had followed his own course, his own advice, and had delayed his attack on Caesar's legions? thus starving them out and winning the battle for the Republic. How would the world have been different? What if George Washington had agreed to become king, as some had offered to him? What if the United States had stayed out of World War I? Such speculation can help us to understand what we should advocate and promote at present. Because having some understanding of how pivotal changes worked out in the past, for good or for ill, of how people were surprised by the unintended consequences of grand plans can help us to avoid mistakes in the future. 
So those are very good reasons to study history, to learn from historians, to think seriously and systematically about the past. But I'd like to offer a few other reasons that are complementary to those that I think are perhaps even deeper. The first has to do with the various ways that we might understand the institutions, the practices, the inherited customs, and the ideas that shape our lives today, and those of the people around us. We can understand institutions and behavior by means of economic reasoning, seeing why people do what they do because of the incentives and the constraints that they face. We can understand ideas by means of their logical connections, one with another, or the role that they play in wider systems of belief. We can understand practices by means of psychological and sociological investigation into common patterns of human behavior and belief, and even with the possibility now offered to us by contemporary neuroscience and empirical psychology of rooting them in the physical structures and chemical makeup of our brains. Those are all lenses we can use to peer into the inner workings of things, to understand how the world of human interaction works. And history is another. <clears throat> it's done better when it's informed by those other disciplines, but in some sense, history is the queen of the sciences. Seeing the antecedent conditions for something helps us to understand that. There's a substantial degree of path dependency in human actions. Having made this choice, other choices may no longer be possible. But there's even a deeper reason still. Ideas, governments, social roles, and the like are, to use a currently popular term, social constructs. It's a major trend in postmodern social analysis and reasonable people typically recoil when they hear, hear that term, for very good reason. Everything is a social construct, we're told. But we shouldn't recoil. There might be something valuable in it. For instance, gender roles do vary widely among societies. In some places, women typically work at home and men go to the labor places. And there are other societies I have visited where women go out and work in the fields and in the market and the men sit around and drink tea and gossip with their friends. In Guatemala, for centuries, weaving has been women's work. That's the work of women. But now that there's a global market for textiles from Guatemala, more and more men are going into weaving as well. It's not women's work anymore. So those gender roles are changing. <laughs> the mistake of the extreme postmodernists who dominate our universities is to assume that because something could be other than it is, that there are other possibilities than the ones to which we are accustomed, that therefore they can be any way we want, that it's all just a matter of will. We can will into being anything that we want. That's nonsense and very, very dangerous nonsense. Just because there's a range of expressions of human nature does not mean that there's no underlying human nature. That doesn't follow. It's the conclusion so many have drawn, but it does not follow. It does not follow that the world can be any way we will it to be. <clears throat> if you print lots and lots of paper money, prices will rise relative to what they would have been in the absence of all that printed paper money. It was true in Hungary, and Germany, and China, and Argentina, and Zimbabwe, and it's true in Venezuela today. If you then apply price controls, you will get shortages. 
It's invariant to what language people speak or their cultural history or whether they were colonized or colonial or what religion they profess or what ideology their rulers espouse. It's about human nature and how the world works. So we shouldn't throw out with the dirty bathwater of extreme postmodern relativism and polylogism, the rejection of all universal principles, we shouldn't throw out the insight of social construction of institutions. Practices, languages, words, phrases, institutions, and ideas are human responses to problems that our ancestors faced. They didn't find them sitting someplace under a rock. Institutions like the business corporation wasn't discovered someplace in the same way that you might discover uh, a vein of gold or, or some kind of uh, valuable resource. People developed them. They developed them at particular times and places to solve certain sets of problems. They're tools, as it were, to help us to figure out how to live in the world. And understanding the problems to which they were the solutions, the problems that people faced at that time, helps us to understand those institutions, what roles they may serve, and how they may be helpful or harmful to human flourishing. Now, I do not consider myself a conservative, but I do recognize the wisdom of a certain kind of deep conservatism associated with a figure such as Edmund Burke, who's much more libertarian than many conservatives understand. We don't demand that institutions and practices and habits justify themselves before the bar of our reason, as the socialists and fascists and others do and then demand their abolition if we cannot find a justification for them and replace them with products of our own reason. It's the height of foolishness to save a practice, justify yourself or be abolished, with no appreciation of how practices and habits may have emerged as solutions to problems of which we are unaware. We may be simply unaware of what these things do or why they are here. On the other hand, a pure reverence for the inheritance of the past is similarly foolish. And the term conservative in America is a bit confusing. It's used differently from in Europe. In Europe, a conservative meant something different from America, because America had a liberal or libertarian foundation. So to be a conservative meant we want to conserve that. European conservatives weren't conserving that. They were conserving the order of feudalism and hierarchy that they had inherited. F.A. Hayek wrote in the Constitution of Liberty an essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative. And here he's speaking of European conservatives, not of this other conception in America. He said there's one respect in which there is a justification for saying that the liberal, in our sense of the term, occupies a position midway between the socialist and the conservative. He is as far from the crude rationalism of the socialist who wants to reconstruct all social institutions according to a pattern prescribed by his individual reason as from the mysticism to which the conservative, the European conservative, so frequently has to resort. What I have described as the liberal position shares with conservatism a distrust of reason to the extent that the liberal is very much aware that we do not know all the answers that he is not sure that the answers he has are certainly the right ones, or even that we can find all the answers. He also does not disdain to seek assistance from whatever non-rational institutions 
or habits have proved their worth. Hayek differed from the European conservative in not accepting whatever exists just because it exists and then surrounding it with superstitious reverence for kings and queens and so on, even when an inherited practice can be shown to be harmful. In the 1950s, he wrote, quote, where private practices cannot affect anybody but the voluntary adult actors, the mere dislike of what is being done by others, or even the knowledge that others harm themselves by what they do, provides no legitimate ground for coercion. And long before anyone on the American left was interested in the topic, he raised the question about laws against homosexuality. He quoted Bertrand Russell, a British philosopher, saying, if it were still believed, as it once was, that the toleration of such behavior would expose the community to the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, the community would have every right to intervene. Close quote. Hayek added, with a perhaps somewhat sardonic tone, but where such factual beliefs do not prevail, private practice among adults, however abhorrent it may be to the majority, is not a proper subject for coercive action for a state whose object is to minimize coercion. Knowing how institutions arose can protect us from foolish attempts to tear them down and replace them with institutions that would likely prove themselves to be in every respect inferior in practice. As the history of utopian totalitarian regimes shows with such stark clarity, and as sometimes well-intentioned interventions also show, as in the case of subsidizing home mortgages and encouraging more and more and more and more people to become homeowners, uh, shows in the case of the United States. When we understand the histories of institutions and practices, whether it's banking or judicial review or mortgage finance or property rights and water, we gain a better understanding of why they emerge and of whether they merit abolition or just not changing them at all or reform in some way, and if the latter, of how they might be incrementally improved. Now that liberal or libertarian approach to history, or as Hayek put it, a very critical form of rationalism, and he emphasized very critical, that is to say critical of the limits of reason to rebuild institutions, enables us to examine practices and policies and reject those that are harmful, keep those that have not been shown to be harmful, and may be presumed to satisfy human purposes even though those purposes or functions may be hidden from us. So that's an important reason why the study of history matters. Understanding the history of institutions and practices and ideas helps us to understand their function and their value or disvalue today. There's another reason, and this one makes me a bit old-fashioned. In the contemporary age when grand narratives of history are considered passe. That's the moral function of history. History has a fundamental moral purpose. The great Roman historian Tacitus put it clearly in the annals that he wrote of the Roman Empire. My purpose is not to relate at length every motion, but only such as were conspicuous for excellence or notorious for infamy. This I regard as history's highest function. It's quite remarkable. History's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. Tacitus wanted us to remember the past. He wanted us to remember the bravery and the villainy of figures in our history. 
we should remember those who sheltered and protected Jews in the darkest days of European history, those who stood up to Jim Crow and to the abuse of their fellow citizens and their fellow humans on the basis of their skin color, those who fought for freedom of trade and freedom of enterprise, those who stood for the rule of law against even the most powerful of tyrants or in the face of the strongest winds of populism. Tacitus continued the passage that I quoted with words that struck me. So corrupted indeed, and he was very focused on the figure of Tiberius, whom he considered a, <clears throat> a terrible figure. So corrupted indeed and debased was that age by sycophancy that not only the foremost citizens who were forced to save their grandeur by servility, but every ex-consul, most of the ex-praetors, and a host of inferior senators would rise in eager rivalry to propose shameful and preposterous motions. Tradition says that Tiberius, as often as he left the Senate House, used to exclaim in Greek, how ready these men are to be slaves. Clearly, even he, with his dislike of public freedom, was disgusted at the abject abasement of his creatures. We should also remember those who assailed liberty, who used the state to rob their fellows and to take from their mouths the bread that they had earned, who threw away the protections of the law for short-term gain, or created and are creating systems of tyrannical control often in the name of securing us against minor risks or threats, some of which are their own creation. The Athenian historian Thucydides is cited, although the text is not in his extant writings, but he's credited with this, as stating, history is philosophy teaching by examples. Very nice way to think of it. I believe it's important to restore that moral function of history to its rightful place as a justification for the study of history. And finally, a few notes on the philosophy of history, or philosophies of history. I consider most self-styled philosophy of history to be arrogant bunk and nonsense. Uh, perhaps in an attempt to wean his students of grand theories, uh, which posit necessary trajectories and paths of evolution and so on. The great English historian of law, Sir Thomas Plucknett, always opened his opening lectures in London with the first statement. And this is related to me by Professor Hale Berman of Harvard Law School, one of Plucknett's greatest students and a very formidable historian of law. He said Plucknett would ascend to the podium look out over the entire crowded hall room of English students in their first year, and then he would say, in the history of the English common law, first one thing happened, and then another. <laughs> now, history doesn't have to be just one damn thing after another. Uh, but it's certainly closer to that than it is to the fantasies of those who believe they have discovered the philosophy of history or who announce the end of history, as a famous book did some years ago. History started very shortly after that again, by the way. Uh, to be sure, you can think philosophically, that is to say logically and clearly, about historical research, about the ontological status of the past, its reconstructions and thought, 
the changeability and variability of memory, the significance and role of the fragmentary evidence, textual, archival, archaeological, artistic, uh, on the basis of which we reconstruct our accounts of the past. Uh, but most philosophies of history are hubristic. They presume with unjustified confidence to have discovered the secret, the key, the esoteric truth to understanding history is the unfolding of some grand pattern that they can discern and then extend into the future as a means to predict and control the future. The most prominent that comes to mind was articulated in mind-numbing prose by G.W.F. Hegel, who stated, history is mind clothing itself with the form of events or the immediate actuality of nature. History is the process whereby the spirit discovers itself in its own concept. Many pointless dissertations have been written about this. Uh, History then unfolds with absolute necessity that can be grasped by someone who can see the process as it is in itself. Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx adopted that approach <clears throat> as young Hegelians, mixed in a farrago of confusing classical economics and powderized history, and claimed that they had created a philosophy that understood the necessity of history and the necessity of the triumph of their worldview. Didn't turn out so well. But so, does that mean there's no progress? We like to think of the progress of history. I think there is such a thing as progress. We've seen so much, after all. <clears throat> but it is neither necessary nor is it predictable. It could all go bust quickly enough with a misstep on the Korean Peninsula, to take one example. That worries me a great deal. And we've seen that in history as well. And if the progress continues, it's unknowable in advance and unpredictable. Sir Karl Popper, the great philosopher of science, a classical liberal thinker, noted in his book, The Poverty of Historicism, it makes no sense to believe, as the Marxists did, you can predict your future knowledge. Because if you could predict what you're going to know later, you know it now. There really is discovery. There's surprise and novelty in store for us. David Bowes, my colleague at the Cato Institute, who will be addressing you later, uh, quips that one of the reasons he likes to get up in the morning and he's happy to be alive is he wants to find out what's going to happen next. What amazing new things will be in store for us? How will the story turn out? And the reason is it's full of surprises and novelty. Now, the great British historian J.B. Burry distinguished two views of progress, and progress is an idea very much tied up in contemporary understanding of history. He said two distinct types can be differentiated, corresponding to two radically opposed political theories and appealing to two antagonistic temperaments. The one type is that of the constructive idealists and socialists who can name all the streets and towers of the city of gold, which they imagine is situated just around the promontory. By the way, we keep hearing this today. Well, okay, maybe Venezuela is not working out so well, but next time, we'll get it right next time. There's always a next time for these people. The development of man is a closed system. Its term is known and is within reach. The other type is that of those who, surveying the gradual ascent of man, 
believe that by the same interplay of forces which have conducted him so far, and by a further development of the liberty which he has fought to win, he will move slowly towards conditions of increasing harmony and happiness. Here the development is indefinite, its term is unknown, and lies in the future. Individual liberty is the motive force, and the corresponding political theory is liberalism. Libertarianism in America. Whereas the first doctrine naturally tends to a symmetrical system in which the authority of the state is preponderant and the individual has little more value than a cog in a well-wheeled oil, his place is assigned. It is not his right to go his own way. What liberalism or classical liberalism libertarianism offers is indefinite progress. Progress we cannot predict, it will be full of novelties, but it's dependent on having the institutions right and making sure people are free to innovate, to experiment in business and science and so many other fields. Now finally, there's the idea that all of history, this is very common, is somehow leading up to the present. And it's only important insofar as it contributed to the present. And moreover, the precursors of the present will be understood in terms of the things we understand today, our values and principles. And that view is called presentism. And it should be guarded against, although it's a very easy temptation. History involves selection of evidence and the creation of narratives and patterns that read as much into as off of the evidence that's available to us. And it carries a sense of inevitability about how the present emerged from the past or from various pasts. But in fact, the past is full of accidents, of small developments that made the modern world things that could have been otherwise. I mentioned a couple earlier on about the what ifs. Well, many years ago, I was at a symposium, an academic symposium. It was really a great deal of fun. We read texts from Aristotle and from Confucius and others in the Confucian tradition. And we had Chinese scholars there to compare and contrast different views of virtue ethics. One participant at the end leaned back and opined he said, now I understand the difference between the West and China. He said, when you start, that's the word he used, when you start with Aristotle, you get the American Revolution, the Constitution, the Industrial Revolution, and the abolition of slavery. When you start with Confucius, you get Mao and the Cultural Revolution. I was a little shocked. Uh, he thought you just start with a book and you just trace the arc of history. And, and I tried to be polite. I said, well, a lot of other stuff happened in between the, those books coming out. And one was particularly important. On April 11, 1241, the Mongol armies had annihilated the Hungarian army at the Battle of the Tisza River. And they were poised to invade all the rest of Europe and subdue it. Mongol scouts had made it all the way to the Atlantic, to the coast of Normandy, they had some crepe suzettes and a, an espresso, <laughs> came back and they said, these people have no clue what's about to hit them. But in 1242, all the Mongol armies left and went back to Karakoram, the capital at that time of the Mongol Empire. And the reason was that on December 11 of 1241, the great Khan, Ogdai Khan, died. And all the other Khans were unclear who should be the new Khan, and they retired with their armies to elect a new Khan. And they never came back to Europe. They did, however, turn their attention toward the Middle East and China. February 10, 1258, 
Mongol armies led by Hulagu Khan uh, besieged Baghdad and defeated them. And on February 13, the army entered the city and initiated an entire week long orgy of murder and destruction. Killed apparently everyone in the city. It was a city estimated to have been about one million population and destroyed the largest collection of books in the world at the time. They were totally destroyed. People said that the rivers were green because they used green ink and all the books were thrown into the rivers and the ink dissolved. All the wisdom that, from the ancient world that had been lost. Uh, had Ogadai Khan not died on December 11, 1241, the history of Europe and the Middle East and China might have turned out very, very differently indeed, regardless of the writings of Aristotle and Confucius. But enough of those philosophical queries. I'll talk a little bit more about them tomorrow. Let me conclude with quoting Patrick Henry, who explained in his famous Give Me Liberty speech in 1775 from the pulpit of St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging, uh, I know of no way of judging of the future, but by the past. And if that's not an endorsement for a group of people at a K-2 Institute seminar, I don't know what could be. <laughs> <laughs>